a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you today by Monticello College. It's also brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and Alta Bank. I'm happy to connect up with my friend Eric Peters, the guy who coined the phrase wrong think as far as this show is concerned. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for, for joining me again. Uh, I asked thank you this. For- oh, go ahead. I was going to say thank you for dragging me out of bed. It's a tough one today. Well, and I, I asked you this question as, as we connected up uh, prior to going on the air, but I, I have to ask you this for my listeners because I think your answer is something they're going to relate to. I said, hey, how are you feeling about things? And, and tell, tell the listeners what, what, uh, what you told me. Boy, well, I feel like I'm straddling two alternate realities. On the one hand, there is the ugly reality that Joe, brought, Joe Biden is going to be the president in, what, 36 hours from now. And then there's the other one, uh, which claims with, with, I mean, almost, almost invincible religious certitude that the Kraken is coming and that Trump is going to pull something out of his hat and all will be well, and he will be inaugurated for four more years, which, I mean, I'm stupefied by that, 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 that people can still believe in that. I'd like to believe in it. I just don't see any reason for believing in it. Yeah, that, that sense of uh, we're kind of in limbo right now has been extremely strong, especially since the events of January 6th. Uh, by the mm-hmm. way, we've had some time now to flesh out what actually happened at the Capitol on January mm-hmm. 6th. Anything that, uh, that jumps out to you that... Uh, may have been uh, misreported or perhaps uh, overhyped, you know, in the initial uh, reports of what took place there? Well, a number of things haven't been reported, including, it's my understanding, that uh, the Capitol Hill cop that shot the uh, the, the female protester uh, is a, an Antifa or BLM activist. Um, also, that they attempted to, apparently to maneuver Alex Jones into being the leader of the group that was uh, running into the Capitol. Uh, that's what I've heard. I haven't confirmed that. Um, but I do, I do feel as though they, they fell into this, this trap of allowing themselves to be portrayed, as, as Joe Biden is now styling it, insurrectionists and domestic right. terrorists, and, and by having done that, demonized anybody who doesn't support the radical left anymore. Yeah, it's it's a very effective smear technique, and and of course, you know it, it's not without historical pre- precedent. Uh, people who have uh, you know invoked the Reichstag fire back in 1933, yep. there are some very interesting parallels with how that event was used to to tar anybody who was outside of mm-hmm. our party and and to put suspicion on them. Yeah, and for that matter, let's just uh, for the moment entertain this idea that Trump has got something that. Uh, is going to be decisive and alter everything. If, in fact, that's true, I expect things to get very hairy over the next 48 hours because I do not believe that if he does have that, that the other side is just going to lie there and let themselves be Trump-shined out of existence. There, there will be some sort of counter-reaction. I don't know what that could be, but it's, it, it, could be, it could be something unprecedented that we've not seen in this country ever, even including potentially um, the war between the states. Interesting. Now, the other alternative is um, Trump doesn't uh, somehow produce the Kraken and Joe Biden takes office. 
And and I know this is speculating, but I'm going to ask you, what happens then? Because there's a lot of words like uh, insurrection, sedition, yeah. domestic terrorism being thrown mm-hmm. around, and they are aimed at people like you and me. Yeah, well, I've I've oft said that the left doesn't fool around, and if they consolidate their power, as appears very likely, um, they're not going to dial things down. They're going to dial things up. They are going to pursue anybody that they perceive as a potential threat to them, not now uh, or even, in the, even in, in, the, in the future. And by threat, I mean simply anybody who disagrees with them. We've already got this cancel culture, this wokeness, where people are, uh, are in, in, in terror of, of, of stating a, an opinion that's contrary to the hardcore left for fear of losing their jobs, of losing business, uh, or even worse. And I think even worse could come. I think it's going to get to the point, potentially, where they will criminalize disagreement. There has been talk about that. Uh, from people within the big tech oligarchies and also people within the Democratic Party that we can't have free speech anymore. They don't, they don't say it that way anymore, but essentially that's what it boils down to. And we've got the example in other countries where you're not allowed to say certain things, and it's literally a criminal offense. For example, uh, now and I think New Zealand or Australia, I can't remember which one, people who merely disagree with the, uh, the Facebook-ing and post comments to that effect on Facebook or online uh, are subject to being visited by the cops. And I foresee something like that happening here, uh, assuming that Joe Biden at all assume the royal purple tomorrow. Okay, you have a column which actually came out this morning called The Options. And yep. I, th- I thought you had some really interesting and productive ideas, because uh, a lot of this stuff is out of our control, right? You and I, right. we, c- we can't really march up there and, okay, I'm going to put this thing right. But there are things right. we can do to better our position. Talk to me about, to, about what you lay out in this column. Well, a flea can't drink the blood of a dead cat, right? So what we have to do, I think, is simply make ourselves less vulnerable to victimization to the degree that we can, and of course it varies from circumstance to circumstance, earn less money, live below your means, uh, make it so that you're as self-sufficient as possible, and just sort of bow out or shrug from this system that they're creating and rely more on your local network, on people that uh, you deal with on a day-to-day basis, and just kind of opt out of this, this panopticon system that they're attempting to impose on us all. That's a pretty tall order, though, as you point out, because most of us have been taught to aspire to this, you yeah. know, this belief that, well, the American life is the nice home in the suburbs, a yep. new car, all the toys, everything that shows how yep. successful we are. But there's a price that we pay when we, when we follow that script. Of course. Once you're beholden uh, to a mortgage, you're then beholden to a job, a, a well-paying job, probably for a corporation. And it's these corporations that have been leveraged and used to enforce all of the sickness psychosis, as I style it. You know, a lot of people don't want to wear a face burqa, but what are they going to do? They have to go to work, and the only way they're allowed to work is if they do that. So they're kind of trapped. Uh, The only way out of that is to figure out a way to not be beholden to them. And the way to do that is to figure out a a more modest life. Um, You know, I did that myself, not uh, not for this reason, because I did it 17 years ago, but I, I left the D.C. area and uh, sold my place up there and bought a much less expensive place in a rural area. So now, thank God, uh, I'm free of having to worry about um, truckling to some corporation because I'm my own master. But I, you know, I was able to do that simply because I was able to take the decision to lead a more modest life. And I encourage everybody listening to this to try to figure out a way to do the same thing. 
Yeah, I've uh, I have kind of stumbled upon it in in my own instance, in in the sense that. Uh, you know, several years ago, I was happily working for radio corporations and, you know, doing what I needed to to keep my corporate overlords happy. I uh, I was let go four years ago and put on a path where now I'm on um, a number of independent platforms that are not dependent on the whims of yep. what's uh, what's woke, you know, in, in the yep. corporate world or not. And it's uncomfortable from the standpoint, and I'm sure you, you saw this, you gave up a little bit of security, but you got yep. a greatly corresponding measure of freedom in return. Absolutely. Yeah, I can live on relatively little because I don't have a gigantic mortgage, because I drive an almost 20-year-old truck that's paid for, and uh, also because I do have land, and because I've got land, I can grow food. I have chickens. I raise my own chickens, so I've got a ready, steady supply of eggs and so on, and I'm just trying to scale that up. I'm thinking about a greenhouse, for example. I'm considering seriously getting some goats and maybe even a couple of cows and possibly getting to the point where I can just stay here, you know, and unless they go full-on Soviet and actually send the Cheka out to people's houses to seize their property, by and large, that kind of a scenario, you should, uh, accepting that kind of a scenario, you should be okay. we got about a minute before we have to go to break, but something you point out here about that self-sufficiency, something that's going to make this very clear to a lot of people, is the fact that uh, prices are very likely to start going up soon. Yeah. Why is that? Well, for a number of reasons. As, as anybody who's been following the economic and financial situation knows, um, the Federal Reserve, with the complicity of the federal government, has literally been uh, exploding the national debt, printing money. Uh, Sleepy Joe is now promising to give Americans another $1,400 of mana from heaven, and inevitably this is going to result in inflation. You can't just keep pumping money out there and maintain the value of the money. So the money that we have, which is based on fiat, uh, you know, just the the... the the, the fact that it's printed and, hey, you should accept this as money, I think eventually that's going to run its course. And so what you can buy with the money you have will be less. The other factor that's quite troublesome, I think, is that they are going to prohibit people from engaging in commerce and buying if they haven't gotten their holy needling in addition to the whole, uh, holy face burkaing. So now's a really good time to make provisions for that very likely eventuality. Okay, we're going to come back in just a few moments. We're going to talk with Eric Peters about the options that are available to us. We have options. They may not be the ones that you would have liked, but you always have options. we got to take this break. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, I am back with uh, one of my favorite wrong thinkers in the whole wide world. That would be Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, in your, your column, The Options... You talk about how living outside the system may be one of those options. Mm-hmm. What's the second option that, uh, that people have? Well, the main thing is just to the extent that you can uh, resist all of what's going on. Uh, just don't be a party to it. Don't, don't patronize in particular stores that compel you to put on that god-awful Facebook so long as you have an alternative. And at the very least, I think it's important to put them in the position of having to make you put the filthy thing on. 
make them feel like heels for having to say something like, oh, you've got to put your mask on before you can get in. Make it as awkward as possible. Don't be complicit in your own enslavement. I think this is just my opinion, and I'm, I'm not a fortune teller, but I think one of the things that we're going to see uh, – with the, with the new Biden administration, I think we're going to see a separation in society, and it's going to come in the form yeah. of um, greater emphasis on masks, and it's time to make sure that everybody's wearing the mask. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of self-appointed um, enforcers being told mm-hmm. to step up and, and make sure that everybody is, is wearing it. it. It concerns me because it seems like this would be a good way to cull the problem children from the herd so they can be dealt with separately. Well, absolutely, and it's not just the the religious rituals associated with weaponized hypochondria. It's everything. You are not allowed any longer to express your point of view, as we've seen with regard to the canceling of Parler, uh, the restrictions placed on what you can say on the mainstream social media sites. So what's happening is they're essentially marginalizing uh, uh, half the country, maybe more than half the country, and excluding them from what's considered polite society. And that's, that's really a dangerous thing, to pariahize half the country. Um, and I don't know where that's going to head, but I don't think it's going to head to a good place unless either things tone down and we figure out a way to reach some kind of reasonable middle ground, which is difficult with the left, because with the left, you have to agree with everything. There is no middle ground with the left. Or find a way for us to part ways. Uh, I think this topic needs to be discussed more often. We hear all the time about uh, democracy, and we hear about consent of the government, well, of the governed. Well, I think we should have more of that. And a point comes when um, enough people feel alienated and not represented, and clearly the government that rules them doesn't care at all what they think and isn't interested in getting their consent and simply wishes to rule them. It's explosive. And those people have to find a way to release the pressure and perhaps form their own political system. I don't know that it is set in stone that the United States has to encompass the entire North American continent. Uh, I don't see why we can't figure out a way, perhaps, to have regional blocks, places where it's more free and places where it's less free and where people get to have a greater say in their, the political organizations that, that, that rule them. Well, and the, the only downside that I can see is that uh, the, the truly totalitarian um, ideologies and ideologues out there, they just can't leave people alone. No. You, they, that's, it's not in their nature to leave people in peace. Exactly. There's, there's an aspect of this, I think, that also should be discussed more often, which is the absence of live and let live. It's, to me, perfectly acceptable if, if somebody is scared of sickness and they, they want to wear the face burqa and they want to close the, the doors to their own store. That's fine. That's, that's what freedom is. But I don't see how they get the right to tell other people uh, that they must wear the burqa, that they must not go into a store. They must not do this, and they must not do that. That's where we have a problem, and that's where the dividing line is in this country. Well, it, it sounds like for people who are serious about remaining free, um, they're going to understand that uh, there's a price to be paid. You're, you're going to have to risk being unpopular or being ostracized or, or standing on your own mm-hmm. if you want to truly live with any degree of freedom. Yeah, and I think it's necessary for us to realize, us being the people on our side of the political divide, that we almost have nothing left to lose, and we're, we're very, very much in peril of losing it all if we don't decide to defend it now. Um, and, of course, we're hesitant to do that because we don't want to lose everything. It's kind of a weird catch-22 situation. Business owners, for example, are terrified of 
uh, of getting closed by the health department, having the uh, the Gesundheitsführers come after them. And so they're, they're just willing to do practically anything to accommodate these policies. But these policies aren't going away, and they're going to get worse, and you're going to lose everything anyway. So better to take a stand now than just to continue to cringe and wind up in the same place where you've lost everything. Something that you have always, uh, you've always been a really good advocate of, Eric, is um, the the essential nature of looking out for each other. We're yep. in a we're in a minority. We're going to be That's a minority right. of a minority at this point. What are your thoughts on uh, having each other's backs as you see other people uh, making a principled stand for freedom? Well, I wrote something the other day. The article is called "Plantemic Fitness," and it was partially about getting in shape and being motivated to get in good shape as a result of all the the craziness that's going on around us. But I also sort of gave a tongue in cheek. Uh, thank you to weaponized hypochondria and sickness psychosis for letting us know who our friends really are at this moment in time. Uh, the face burkaing, um, all of it, the, the, the hysteria surrounding it. You now know who you can trust and who you can't based on where they stand on these issues. And I think that's given people a lot of clarity. I myself have probably lost half my friends, people that I thought were good friends, and it turned out they're really not. But the friends that I have left and the new friends that I have made are people who are really more simpatico with my values, with my morals, with, with what I think is important. And these are people who will stand by you, or at least who are of stronger mind and more likely to stand by, by you when times get tough. And I think that that's, that's the one positive thing that's come out of all this mess. I have heard a number of people um, remark that uh, the biggest surprise of this last year was they found out who their friends really were and who they weren't. And I, I sure. suspect there's a lot of there's some pain behind that realization. But at the same time, um, I, I know the people that I would trust enough that I'd be willing to put my life in their hands. And that's a good Absolutely. thing. What's the saying about hard times um, create making tough people? Yeah. And there's truth in that. And it's easy to sort of gloss over important differences, particularly with regard to moral differences, when things are more casual and you don't really, you can, you can dodge discussing them. You can go out and have dinner with, with people and talk about the game and you can talk about the weather, but you don't really touch on these important issues. So they're put to the side. But really, we should be talking about these issues because they cut to the core of who we are as people. And uh, I think it's important that we, we associate with people that we can respect and admire and who respect and admire us in return. Okay, we got about two minutes left here, Eric. I want to shift gears. Let's talk something automotive. Um, sure. you, had, you had a chance to, to review the uh, Ford um, F-250, the 2021 yes. F-250. What's your take? I mean, you... you uh, mm-hmm. Actually, it's the F-150. Sorry, the F-150 oh. uh, and, and the F... I guess you had both of them. Mm-hmm. Talk to me I about did. pickups, though. In, in this age, uh, what's the viability of, of the pickup? Getting better, getting worse? Well, both, but worse and better, kind of like the tale of two cities. With regard to the F-250, a really interesting development that, as far as I know, not many other people have, have discussed. Ford has come out with a brand-new gas V8, a big V8, a 7.3-liter gas V8 that they've put into the... Uh, optional equipment roster for the F-250, and what it is really is a kind of side shot at what diesels have become. You can still get the power stroke diesel in the F-250, but because of the government, that option, if you can believe it, costs you almost $11,000. So it's extremely expensive. Well, they decided to come out with uh, a big displacement gas engine that makes 
pretty good torque and pretty good power and will give you two-thirds of the capability of that diesel, and you can buy it for $2,000. So you can imagine how popular that option is going to be. Okay, help a metrically challenged guy. 7.3 liters, how many cubic inches displacement is that? Um, I think it's 445 cubic inches, so it's wow. nearly as big as the 455 in my old muscle car. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, that is kind of an encouraging thought. We're up against yep. the clock here. Eric, tell everybody where they can find your website. Sure. Go on, uh, go on down to epautos.com, and I've joined Gab. I'm a libertarian car guy. And um, I've also joined, oh, what the heck is the name of the, I can't remember it, the new alternative to YouTube. Um, I'll have something on my site about that as well, because I got, <laughs> got banned from YouTube for wrong, thinkful thoughts about the whole Facebook thing. boy, <laughs> Eric? Yeah, thanks. I took it as a compliment. Great to visit with you as always. Thank you. Sounds great. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you to the Brian Hyde Show. A special shout out for those of our new listeners. Thank you so much for finding this podcast or this broadcast. I'm happy that you're part of our audience. If you're wondering, okay, what's it all about? Come on. What are you going to talk about? I'll tell you this. It's no secret there are a lot of problems going on right now. There's a lot of serious challenges In fact, I can't remember a time in my life when I have encountered more people within recent memory who have said some variation of, I don't know what to do. What can we do? So, uh, first of all and foremost, understand I don't have all the answers. I do have, uh, I have some principles that I have arrived at through a lifetime of, uh, you know, trial and error as well as some pretty dedicated study, but I still don't have all the answers. So all I can tell you for sure is, yep, we are in the midst of some very challenging times right now. Probably going to get a lot more challenging, at least in the immediate future. And if you're uncomfortable with that sense of free fall, I think that's probably the best way I can describe what it's felt like for the last couple of weeks. As we've, uh, you know, just kind of been watching everything unfold. Oh, what they're calling an insurrection in Washington, D.C. I mean, they're throwing around some pretty scary sounding words. But the reality may or may not match up. Which makes me go, hmm, why is someone why does somebody want me to be afraid? So I'm not gonna give you uh, I'm not gonna give you hopefully more things to fear. This is what I know. There are events that are out of our control. There are things you and I have influence over that we sometimes tend to overlook. And there's enough anger in the world that I think if we really want to be a part of the solution, we've got to be willing to come forward in such a way that we're not bringing more anger to an already volatile situation. Now, having said that, we need to, uh, we need to be willing to dig deep. We need to be willing to study out issues. Here's one that's kind of been on my mind, and that is fascism. You hear a lot of accusations. Well, you know, I mean, there was, there was a, a big uh, media 
blitz here just uh, within the last week or so of it. Well, we know that Trump is a fascist and everybody who follows him is a fascist. And this is a form of fascism. And I hear that thrown around. I mean, come on, Antifa and even Black Lives Matter, you know, they'll, they'll throw words around. We go out, we bash a fash. Well, who's a fascist? Well, anybody who isn't marching and chanting and saluting with us. I don't know. That sounds pretty fascist to me. <laughs> You're going to go visit violence on people who aren't, you know, marching in lockstep with you. But whatever. So I wanted to share with you a couple of thoughts. This is from Lou Rockwell. Yes, the publisher of LouRockwell.com. And this is a note that he penned, or this is a, uh, an essay he penned back in 2011. So it's not like, well, you know, Johnny come lately, here he is with his answers. This is something that he asserts we have been living under for decades. He says, fascism, what it really is, what it should be done to combat it. I'm not going to share the whole essay, but I am going to have a link to it in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. I strongly recommend take a look at it, even if you don't agree with it. And, and you may not. You may think, nope, nope, that doesn't describe what I think. It's worth considering. At the very least, you're going to come away with a little bit broader perspective. At the very worst, you'll be, okay, you wasted five minutes of my time or ten minutes of my time. But the point here is fascism, unlike what the dominant media narrative asserts, has almost nothing to do with people expressing politically correct opinions or even people refusing to wear masks. Or even a group of disorganized rioters smashing windows in the U.S. Capitol. As Lou Rockwell points out, fascism is an ideology of state control, one that's been immensely successful over the past 70 years in the United States. And Lou Rockwell gives you eight marks of fascism, fascism rather, that are all clear, powerful trends within the United States regime today. So this is the quick and dirty definition. He says, fascism is the system of government that cartelizes the private sector centrally plans the economy to subsidize producers, exalts the police state as the source of order, denies fundamental rights and liberties to individuals, and makes the executive state the unlimited master of society. I'm having a hard time picking that one apart and saying, yeah, that doesn't really apply to us. That that describes mainstream politics in America today. And by the way, it's not just in America. This is true in Europe as well. And it's so much a part of the mainstream that it's hardly noticed anymore. Lou Rockwell says if fascism is invisible to us, it is truly the silent killer because it fastens a huge, violent, lumbering state on the free market that drains its capital and productivity just like a deadly parasite on a host. This is why the fascist state has been called the vampire economy. It sucks the economic life out of a nation and brings about a slow death of a once thriving economy. So he goes from here through the origins of fascism. He uh, goes over uh, the eight marks of fascist policy. I'm just going to run through these real quick. Government is totalitarian because it acknowledges no restraint on its powers. Government is a de facto dictatorship based on the leadership principle. Government administers a capitalist system with an immense bureaucracy. Number four, producers are organized into cartels in the way of syndicalism. By the way, you might want to break a dictionary out. I had to on this as well. Economic planning is based on the principle of autarky. autarky. There's another one to look up. Number six, government sustains economic life through spending and borrowing. Number seven, militarism is a mainstay of government spending. And number eight, military spending has imperialist aims. 
again, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to take a look at this. This is an article that was published originally in 2011. And the point he's making here is, look, in the fight against fascism, there's no reason to be despairing. He says, we must continue to fight with every bit of confidence that the future belongs to us, not to them. And the choice we face is the total state or total freedom. If we choose the state, he says, we will continue to sink further and further and eventually lose all that we treasure as a civilization. Now, if we choose freedom, we can harness that remarkable power of human cooperation that will enable us to continue to make a better world. This is pretty good. Uh, this is a nice little kick in the seat of the pants. He talks about how our world draws on the energies and creativity of all peoples in the world united in the great, noble project of creating a prospering civilization through peaceful human cooperation. And he says we possess the only weapon that is truly immortal, and that is the right idea. That's what will lead to victory. Okay, it'll be in the show notes. You can check that out. Here's another article, though, that I want to recommend, and this was published, actually, on Lou Rockwell's site earlier today. It's titled, When Fascists Accuse Their Victims of Being Fascists. Something we saw a lot of these last few years, and especially the la- this past summer. Now, this article by Vasco Kohlmeier goes through and explains that, you know, there's, there is a very clear memo that has gone out describing Trump is the Proud Boys, you know, and the, and the Proud Boys, they're fascist. Trump's movement is a uniquely American fascism, and so on and so on. But I want you to hear some of the questions about the behavior of Trump supporters from the time they mobilized in 2015 through the end of last year to see whether their ex- actions could be described as any way as fascist in nature. And these are some of the questions. How many acts of violence have been committed at MAGA rallies? How many riots have Trump supporters incited? How many, are any, how many inner cities have they destroyed? How many businesses have they looted? How many police precincts have they attacked? How many courthouses have they taken over? How many buildings have they burned down? How many churches have they desecrated? How many city zones have they occupied? How many Democrats have they deplatformed? Canceled? Silence? How many elections have they stolen? And if they've done any of the above, you know, then please show your work, but show where that's, that's been done. And Vasco's point here is the same cannot be said of the Democrats and the left. This is, in fact, what they do all the time. The fascist tactics of violence, brutality, cancellation, and intimidation, they are the left's standard modus operandi. And those burning cities across the United States last year are still a vivid memory. Now, he gives some pretty good examples here of, uh, of some actual leftist-inspired violence and damage that, uh, that really you know, looks, looks a lot more fascist to the casual observer than what, is, what they are accusing others of doing. He says, how ironic then that the Democrats and the left, the very people who actually behave like fascists and employ fascist tactics, accuse the other side, the victims of their depredations, of being fascists. Look, I'm not a psychologist, but uh, there's a thing called projection. And I think if you look closely at politics, you'll find it happens a lot. By the way, it can happen on all sides, so take care you're not engaging in it yourself.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, want to send some love the way of our sponsors, including Monticello College, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, as well as Alta Bank. Those are the guys you should talk to if you are needing a uh, home loan, a new mortgage, a refinance on your existing mortgage. You'll find contact for all of my sponsors at the bottom of the show notes, which you'll find at the Brian Hyde Show. So earlier in the hour, we talked with Eric Peters, always an enjoyable affair, and I love Eric's take on automobiles. I think I'm probably better informed about more automotive things because of him, because, uh, look, I like cars, I like nice cars, I don't know that much about them. I don't turn gears, or I don't turn wrenches for myself, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not that smart. And I get scared, I take stuff apart and, you know and I can't figure out how to put it back together. I figure if I'm going to pay somebody to fix something, I don't need to unfix it myself. But that's just me. I'm not telling you how to do things. Would it surprise you to know that cars got safer because of the free market? There's a great article from the Foundation for Economic Education about why car companies are spending millions of dollars per day to crash test their vehicles. And this is from Satish Bapanapali. And this is just a great illustration of how the free market works to help everybody, not just, you know, the shareholders. Satish asks, is it that time of year yet, you know, time to bash Milton Friedman and his shareholder doctrine? Yes, it is. In fact, 2020 marked the 50th anniversary of the famous Friedman Doctrine, which was published in the New York Times in 1970. Of all of Friedman's great ideas, the shareholder doctrine is perhaps the most misunderstood by academics in large part because many left-leaning intellectuals use the good old straw man argument to misleadingly caricature the doctrine as profit-at-all-cost system regardless of human toll. Now, case in point, the latest sermon by some reputed academics published in Fortune magazine, 50 years later, Milton Friedman's shareholder doctrine is dead. Now, this one has all the usual tropes, including the claim that Friedman urged business to use its muscle to reduce the effectiveness of unions, blunt environmental and consumer protection measures, and defang antitrust law. He sought to reduce consideration of human concerns, such as treating workers, consumers, and society fairly. Now, the author here says, hey, Friedman said no such things. Read it for yourselves. Friedman's primary argument was that it's not the job of the officers of a corporation, in other words, corporate executives, to fight for social causes. The officers must only act in accordance with the shareholders' wishes, which generally will be to make as much money as possible while conforming to the basic rules of the society, both those embodied in law and those embodied in ethical custom. Now, of course, in some cases, the shareholders may themselves encourage charitable spending, and other corporate policies and activities deemed socially responsible, in which case executives are tasked with finding the best ways to fulfill those objectives. In his article, Friedman clearly demonstrates why this is a logically precise position. Now, the scolds who authored the Fortune article put forth an alternative. Their three pillars, proposal advocates for law, uh, proposal advocates for law to be imposed on corporations with vague and fuzzy objectives such as responsible corporate citizenship, 
treating workers fairly, avoiding externalities such as carbon emissions that cause unreasonable or disproportionate harm to others. And corporations should make profits by benefiting others. And then to rub foolishness on the vagueness, the proposal calls for putting the onus on the corporations to measure and demonstrate progress on those fuzzy objectives. To put it in Friedman's own words, such proposals are notable for their analytical looseness and lack of rigor. So as appealing and high-minded as these vague top-down solutions may sound, the corporate political complex, to paraphrase Ike, will undoubtedly turn the three pillars proposal into another legislative morass, completely undermining the noble objectives and in many cases producing the opposite of the intended outcomes. And here the author says instead we should pursue a pragmatic free market approach, which I believe Friedman would fully endorse. But first, let's take a look at a real-world example where this approach worked beautifully. In 1965, another famous corporation scold by the name of Ralph Nader published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed to inveigh against automotive companies' alleged tendency to resist the introduction of safety features and their reluctance to spend money on improving safety. In a famous interview from the 1970s, the inimitable TV host Phil Donahue asked Milton Friedman, Friedman, tell us how we are going to get automotive companies to sell us safety with the same vigor that they sell us cosmetic features. Friedman's response to Donahue was simple, quote, If the public really wanted to buy safety rather than cosmetics, it would be in the self-interest of the automobile companies to sell them safety. And he gave the example of the Checker Superba, which was a car primarily marketed for its safety. However, not many people wanted to buy it. Fast forward a few decades, car companies are spending millions of dollars per day just to crash test their vehicles. The cost of just one modern human-like crash test dummy could run upwards of half a million dollars. Vehicles are rigged with all kinds of expensive sensors and tested in various crash scenarios such as frontal impact, side impact, pole impact, and rollover tests under the watchful eyes of multiple high-speed cameras and highly paid engineers. The result? Well, from 1966 to 2013, the traffic fatality rate dropped by over 80%, from 5.5 fatalities per 100 million miles driven to 1 per 100 million miles. Even though the total population and number of cars has multiplied since then, and the average speed and engine power of automobiles has increased tremendously. So what changed? Well, the post-World War II prosperity gradually improved the family's pocketbooks, so that starting in the 1980s, people could afford to pay for expensive safety features. And in this environment came the NHTSA's five-star safety ratings and the non-profit IIHS Top Safety Pick Awards, which are based on rigorous testing and steadily improving traffic safety, steadily improving safety standards. Rather, consumers' willingness to pay for safety and the information available in the form of simple safety ratings and awards proved to be a potent combination. And as car companies realized people were willing to pay for more safety features. They began going all out with a plethora of innovations like anti-lock braking systems, tire pressure monitoring system, front and side curtain airbags, collapsible steering columns, traction control, backup cameras, collision avoidance, prevention systems, lane departure and blind spot warning systems, adaptive cruise control, safe vehicle exit assist, and soon to come, self-driving cars. So it seems as if the greedy automotive corporations transformed into noble organizations that care for consumer safety. Is that true? 
In reality, notwithstanding all the hand-wringing by Ralph Nader and in the decades preceding the government's establishment of the NHTSA, I think that's the National Highway Safety Administration, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in 1970, automobile companies had tremendously improved the safety of automobiles with the introduction of seatbelts and research into car seats, among many other technological improvements. And as people became richer and were willing to pay for more safety features, car companies obliged by developing even more advanced technologies. Crash test ratings and safety awards are easy to sell to common people. As a result, Shareholders of car companies are encouraging their corporate executives to increase profits by benefiting society with safer cars. Now, there's a lot more to this article, but this is a, this is a great introduction into you know why you don't need the government boot on the back of your neck to get you to do the right thing. As the author here, uh, Satish Bapanapali, says... If the customers demand products from companies that have high crash safety ratings, then it's in the shareholder's best interest to direct their corporate executives to follow business practices that will earn the high ratings. The companies themselves seek to achieve the high CSR rating without any need for government regulations, just as is the case with automotive crash test ratings today. In other words, those uh, crash safety ratings provide a way to implement the Friedman Doctrine to achieve the CSR objectives. Establishing an easy-to-understand, value-added rating system is tough. However, it would be far more valuable for society if the passionate CSR advocates spent their efforts developing these ratings instead of shirking that responsibility in favor of seemingly easier, coercive, top-down legislative methods. Why? Well, because in the end, the free market mechanisms will get you closer to achieving your objectives than any government mechanisms. And I would just add to that, and because they are freely chosen, because they are voluntarily implemented, they're being motivated by the right motivation. It's not fear. It's not the, the, des- the desire to avoid punishment. It's the desire to do the right thing. Who knew? I've always been told business is just there to exploit people. In fact, I was told workers of the world need to unite for some reason or another. You know, because of the exploitation. Yeah, I think I'll trust the free market. This is The Brian Hyde Show.